I will uh, read again for you um, the passage going back to uh, verse 10 for context, and I'll read through to verse 17, and then we will uh, we'll pray, and then we'll study. Again, Yahweh spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of Yahweh your God, let it be as deep as Sheol, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put Yahweh to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows uh, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Yahweh will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we study your word tonight, Lord, that you would enable us to understand that you would speak clearly to us, Lord. Illuminate your word by your Holy Spirit, we pray. Lord, may I teach the text, the whole text, and nothing but the text. And may you be glorified through the teaching of your word tonight, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, context, context, story so far. Uh, we have in Isaiah 7 this story of Ahaz. The historical context is important. As I repeat it each week, I'll get briefer and briefer, I imagine. But uh, we have the divided kingdom, Judah in the south, Israel in the north. Israel um, in the north was being threatened by Assyria. And so Israel, to seek to defend itself, wants to put together an alliance. The alliance would be Syria, not Assyria, that's the big superpower to the north, but Syria will join with Israel, but that's still not enough, so they need to have somebody else, and they want Judah to join them. Judah is the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is, and the king there is Ahaz, and Ahaz is not playing ball. He does not want to have an alliance. It's not because he's godly, we're seeing very clearly he isn't. He is somebody who brought back worship in the high places, brought back worship of the golden calf, brought back worship of Baal, and instituted worship of Molech, which, as many of you know, involved child sacrifice. This was not a good guy. His desire to not have an alliance was uh, not one that was born out of righteousness, but one that was born out of his own conspiracy. He wants to, rather than make an alliance with the two small nations to protect them against the one big nation, he's going to go straight round the other side and make an alliance with the big nation. In other words, the mouse, when threatened by two rats, is going to make an alliance with the cat. If you want a fairly accurate analogy of what was going on, and we, I think you can guess how this is going to end. But anyway, um, so... 
Ahaz is that man, and what has happened now is that because he won't play ball, Israel and Syria have decided, well, we need Judah on our side. Ahaz isn't playing ball. Let's get rid of him. Let's go in, take, a, take out Ahaz. We don't want to just let his son or some relative take power, because you know what happens then. Often they're cross because you've killed their dad, and they don't want to play ball either. So we will just get rid of that dynasty. And we will put in our own dynasty, and we'll put in Tabeel as the king. But as we know, the problem with that is not that they're going to remove an ungodly king, but that the ungodly king is part of the dynasty of the house of David. If they remove him, then it invalidates God's covenant with David. And God, being faithful, despite the unfaithfulness of Ahaz, is going to make sure that doesn't happen. And so when we came a couple of weeks ago into the first part of chapter 7, we had um, Isaiah going out and meeting Ahaz. He goes to see him with his son, Shear Yashub. Again, I advocate that as a good name to call your child. If you want a good biblical name, I like that, Shear Yashub. A remnant will return. As we go through these next few chapters, the concept of remnant is going to become increasingly important. It's no accident that Shear Yashub was there, and we'll see more about that today. So with his son holding his, his young son holding his hand, Isaiah goes out, he meets Ahaz. Ahaz is getting himself ready for the next wave of attack from Israel. Um, they've come right, right down to the edge of Jerusalem, and it looks like the end is nigh for Ahaz. At the same time, Syria didn't attack from the north. Syria came from the south, cut off the, uh, uh, the coastal port of Elath, and as a result, they're pretty much surrounded, and they look like they're done for, and what's he doing? He's just knuckling down and preparing to defend himself again, and that's where Isaiah finds him, and Isaiah gives him this word, and he says, look, Verse, uh, pick up verse 7, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. He tells him that the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, the head of Samaria is the son of Romalia. These two kingdom kings are who they are. This is their position, and the implication is that this is as far as they will get in their career path, as it were. They're not going to go any further. Nothing more will come of them. They won't be conquerors of Judah. They won't resist against Assyria. This is as far as they'll get. And we saw in the middle there last, uh, well, a couple weeks ago that the, the 65 years of Ephraim being a people uh, came to fruition as prophesied. And uh, the important thing in those first, uh, first section is the last half of verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, and there's a play on words here between um, the word for establish, be firm, and the word for faith, believe. They sound very similar in Hebrew. So that's kind of why the English translations tend to try and do a similar play on words. The idea is, if, if you are faithful, you're going to be established. Now, these kings, they're not going to have any success against Judah. It's not happening. But you personally, you better watch your back, pal. You need to be faithful. You need to be a man of faith for you to be established. They, they're not being established. They're not going to accomplish their goals. But that doesn't mean that you're going to be okay. Then what we saw last time as we came into chapter uh, 7 and verse 10 was that Yahweh speaks to Ahaz, presumably again uh, through Isaiah. 
and he asked, tells him to ask for a sign. And as we saw last time, this sign could be anything. Ahaz responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6, saying, I shall not put the Lord to the test. He does what many religious people do. He recognizes a little bit of Bible from his religious heritage, as it was when Isaiah, presumably speaking here on behalf of God, says, ask a sign of Yahweh your God. We went back last time, we read Deuteronomy 6, and we saw this repetition, Yahweh your God, Yahweh your God, Yahweh your God, again and again throughout Deuteronomy 6. And I suspect that Ahaz, being the king of, Israel, of Judah, you know, within the people of Israel, that he has this religious heritage, that your God, Yahweh your God, Yahweh your God, is ringing in his ears. Ah, Deuteronomy 6. I remember a bit of Deuteronomy 6. Just like some people raised as Christians who don't walk with the Lord, who aren't saved, might know John 3.16. They might know that the Bible tells you to judge not lest you be judged. That's one of the other favorite verses. But they don't know things in context. So I very ironically, Ahaz quotes from Deuteronomy 6, completely unaware seemingly that Deuteronomy 6 is a passage where not putting God to the test in context means don't test him by worshipping idols, stay faithful to him. And Ahaz is a man who has worshipped idols. God, as we saw last time, was basically taking this man without faith and offering him grace. Here's your chance. I'm offering you that if you are faithful, you'll be established. I'm promising you that if you are faithful to Yahweh, you will be firm. You will not be toppled. Have a sign. Anything you like. Anything you like as a sign to show that I will establish you. And what does he do? He says, no, I don't want a sign. I don't want a sign. And he tries to make it religious, his rejection of God, as so many people do. And why does he reject God? because he does not want to place his trust in Yahweh. He does not want to place his trust in Yahweh. He wants to place his trust where his trust already is. His trust is in Assyria, the conspiracy that he has planned. And he will not put God to the test. So verse 13, and he said, and this is Isaiah speaking again on behalf of Yahweh, he said, Hear then, O house of David, it is too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also. And that's where we left it last time, that uh, there is this wearying that has been going on, not just of the nations around who want the conspiracy, the, 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 uh, the, the coming together of these nations to defend against Assyria. He's wearying them, but now he's wearying God. You see, he could have wearied men. He could have said, not going to help you, Israel, not going to help you, Syria. And he'd still have been okay because he had the opportunity to be faithful to God. He had an opportunity to repent. He had an opportunity to turn. And as we saw last time, he rejected that. And so he wearies God now as well as men. He, is, he has rejected the help of Israel and Syria. He has rejected the help of Yahweh himself. His trust is firmly in the superpower of Assyria. Now, as we pick up this week in verse 14 with this very famous verse, we're going to see this context now of the, what's known as the virgin birth prophecy. 
Um, then as we come here, I just want you to take note one more thing from verse 13. Last time we talked about how from the end of verse 9, if you are not firm you, uh, in faith, you will not be firm at all, that the use there was singular. Most of the language of English, we say you for singular and you for plural. We are uh, almost unique amongst languages in that regard. Most other languages have a different word for you, singular, and you, plural. And as I said last time, they do in Texas as well. Y'all. That's how they do it. But, but we, when we read our Bibles, unless you've got a Texan version that has some y'alls there, we have to sometimes be ignorant of what's actually being said. And it's very important that you note, he says, if you are not firm in faith, it's singular. He's talking to Ahaz. When he says, ask a sign, that's singular. He's talking to Ahaz. Now, he's turned to the plural. You, house of David, are wearying men. You, house of David, are wearying God. Now, hold on a second. Who is it who's made the decision to weary men and weary God? That's Ahaz. But what is coming clear now is that the people of, Israel, of, people of Judah, sorry, more specifically, the people of Judah are going to be uh, living the consequences of their leaders' decisions. Something that plagued Israel throughout its history. And so, when the plural is there, then we are going to see that when we come to verse 14, with the sign being given, that we continue with you plural. And that is going to be very important. Let's read verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Okay, now, I want you to note this. Okay, this is a difficult verse. I'm not pretending it's easy. It's a controversial verse. I remember a family member once saying to me when I was very, very young in my faith, a family member with a religious background who didn't share the faith herself, saying to me, oh yeah, I studied this at school. My religious studies teacher told me that the Hebrew word here, Alma, doesn't mean virgin, it just means a young woman. A young woman's going to give birth. And that view spread throughout the church. It spread from liberalism and it continued to spread through the church to the point where mainstream churches, sort of starting in the 1700s, becoming widespread in the 1800s and becoming epidemic almost in the 1900s, began to reject the doctrine of the virgin birth. And the, the, the anchor of all of this thinking was that it was never prophesied in the first place. Alma means young woman. It doesn't mean virgin. He's not saying virgin here. So that's the, that's the contemporary problem that we face as we look at this. So I want to unpack that, but let's look at the text as we do and see what happens. Therefore, because you've wearied God, because you've wearied men, therefore, because you've rejected the sign, therefore, because you've rejected my offer of repentance, that offer of grace, if anyone didn't deserve grace, if it was real grace, if it was real mercy, for anyone, it's a king who, em who engages in Molech child-killing worship. I mean, it's ridiculous. And yet God in his grace offers him this opportunity and he's rejected it. Therefore, you didn't want a sign, but I'm giving you one anyway. Here's your sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Ahaz, I'm offering you singular a sign. You don't want it? House of David, I'm now giving you plural a sign. 
You see, when you read it in English, it's almost as if, hey, Ahaz, you didn't want a sign, but I'm giving you one anyway. Uh -uh -uh. He's saying, Ahaz, I offered you one personally so that you could be sure that you would be established. But no, you don't want to follow me. You don't want to trust in me. But the house of David, though you may fall, will stand. Because I've given my word, I've given my covenant, and the house of David will produce the son of David, and he will have a reign that will never end. There's no, there's, no, there's no doubt over this. God has assured it. And so for, therefore, the sign is not for Ahaz. God offered him a lifeline, and he rejected the lifeline. So the sign is a sign to you, plural, y'all, the house of David. So that's the first very important thing for us to note. So the Lord himself is going to give you a sign. And here is the sign. Now, before we talk about the sign, one more thing. What is a sign? The word sign in Hebrew is used in three completely different ways. The word sign is used of the stars. Guide you at night. You know, uh, Genesis chapter 1, when God creates the heavens and the earth, and, and there he is, and he makes the, the stars as signs, he says. Just, it's just that they're there. They're, they're, they're markers of seasons and times and, and locations just a sign in that sense, very loose term. Other times, as in uh, Exodus chapter 3, when God uh, speaks of a sign for Moses, the, the sign can just mean some sort of indication, some sort of proof. Sign would mean proof in the loose sense of the word, it's just a proof. But as we know, sometimes signs are miraculous, right? Now God is saying here, I'm going to give you a sign so that you know, house of David, that you are never going to be destroyed, that you will never be vanquished, that this plan to destroy the house of David is not going to happen. I'm going to give you a sign. Now that sign in the circumstances, remember the army of Israel has come to the very edge of Jerusalem, the southern port below them has been blocked off, they're, they're in dire straits so to speak. And therefore, this sign isn't going to just be something like, we would be expecting a miraculous sign in this context. So here is the sign. The sign is, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's the sign. Now, first things first, does Alma mean young woman? Well, kind of, but it's not that simple. It's not that simple. Before we get to the specifics of the word, though, look at this bigger picture. I want to give you a sign, house of David. Israel is above you in the north. Syria is at you below at the south. You're surrounded. Everything looks hopeless. They're about to take out Ahaz, put in their own king. They're going to destroy the entire house of David, kill all the descendants, and they will get rid of David, the house of David, and they will destroy the prophecy, and everything looks hopeless. And I want to give you a sign. A young woman's going to get pregnant and have a baby. Oh, gee, God, thanks. That's wonderful. Man, I've, you know, I never knew that young women could get pregnant and have babies. What a sign. What, a, what an astonishing thing. That's really put my mind at rest. Do you see the problem? It's not much of a sign, is it? And it becomes more problematic as we now look at this word Alma. This word Alma. Let's have a look. Are these people right in saying that it means young woman rather than virgin? In the broadest sense, yes. It does mean young woman. It does. 
But that's not the problem that it seems to be. It's not the problem that it's been presented as. One thing I like to try and remember is that when we're being very, very strict linguistically, I like to use the phrase, not my own, I'm not that clever, I pinched it off someone, I can't remember his name, or otherwise I'd tell you, but there's this phrase which is, words don't have meanings. Meanings have words. It's one of those things that you might just go away tonight and think about for the next five hours. It's really deep and profound. But what it's essentially saying is this. There is a concept, there is a meaning, there is something that you want to communicate. How do you express it? What words do you have available to you in the language, in the, in the, in the colloquialisms of the, of the location that you're in, of the time that you're in? How do you communicate this meaning, this essence, this thing that you're trying to communicate? You use words, that's how you do it, but it's the meaning that is the crucial thing here. Words themselves aren't limited to specific meanings always. And words can have broad range of meanings. I learned this very practically from a very good friend of mine when I was younger, and I, he used to rebuke me on a regular basis for my use of the B word. Boat. I kept calling things boats. That's not a boat, it's a dinghy. That's not a boat, it's a, you know, I don't even remember all the other words. He, he wanted to be precise, you know. I didn't just go on a boat, you know, I'm on a dinghy, you know. And it's, that was obviously his area, his domain. To me, look, it, it's got a sail on it. it, it moves on water, it doesn't sink, it floats. It's a boat. You know, to me, you know, a canoe, something you make with a bit of paper, something you, you go on a cruise on, they're all boats. And he's like, no, no, can't be. So there are different words that you have to communicate concepts. Now, in Hebrew, there are a few key words that we need to understand. When Isaiah is saying, look, here's a sign, there is going to be this woman. Now, the one thing we all agree on is it's a woman. It's obviously a woman. What words could he have used? Well, there's one word called nara, which means damsel. And the word damsel is age-related. So if you're kind of like going up through the years, as it were, you can't be a damsel. You can't, you, you can't be sort of getting into your grandparent years and say, I'm a damsel in distress. Not in Hebrew, you're not, I'm afraid. You, you are not a damsel anymore. A damsel is, an, in every time it's used in the Hebrew Bible, the word nara, it is age-related. Now, sometimes it is a word that is used of people who are virgins. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 2 is a good example of that. But of course it is, because we're not living in 21st century America where everybody's encouraged to go and live and do whatever they, they please. We're living in an era where morality and purity and, and the sanctity of marriage were all valuable and, and, and treasured things, certainly compared to this society. So, of course, damsels generally are going to often be virgins. That's how it is. But there are examples, such as Ruth 2 verse 6, where the word damsel is used as somebody who's young who's not a virgin. So if Isaiah is trying to communicate that this young woman is a virgin, he can't use the word nara. It's not an option because the word nara is occasionally used to speak of people who aren't virgins. Now, what the critics will say often is he should have used the word betula, or betula, I think is how it's pronounced, which is a word that is not age-related, but it does refer to singleness. 
It does refer to singleness. Does the word betela mean a virgin? Well, often it does, and example after example can be found in the scriptures of this word speaking of a virgin. But what is interesting is that often this word is used with further explanation, just so that you know, here's a betula and she's a virgin. Now, if the word means virgin, you haven't got to say that she's a virgin. It would be like saying, here is a virgin, she's not laying with anybody. It's like, well, yeah, I know, that's kind of redundant. You're saying the same thing twice. So that implies that though a betula is normally a virgin, it's not something that is intrinsic to the meaning of the word. And of course, again, culturally, if you're having a word where in every single case that it's used, it refers to someone who is single, then obviously most of the time it will be a virgin. But we have in Joel chapter 1 and verse 8 a perfectly good example of the word being used of someone who isn't a virgin. So again, if Isaiah is trying to communicate that the uh, Alma is a virgin, then Betula wouldn't be the word to use. The only other word left is the word Alma. Does it mean virgin? No, I don't think it does specifically. I don't think that the word Alma means virgin in the way that the English word means virgin. That it, it literally refers specifically to someone who hasn't had sex. I don't think it means that. It does mean a young woman, but it means a young woman of a marriable age. Again, it's a younger woman. It's never used of older women. It's never anywhere in the Bible used of married women. That is crucial. It is a young woman who is single and is of marriable age. And there are no clear examples anywhere in the Bible of it being used of anybody who is not a virgin. So if Isaiah in the Hebrew language is trying to communicate that this woman is a, is a virgin, he hasn't got the same words that we have to use. He's got Nara, he's got Betula, he's got Alma. What's he going to use? Is he going to use one of the other words where there are examples of it being used to people who aren't virgins? Or is he going to use the one that is never used anywhere in Scripture of a virgin? And most importantly of all, if the word Alma only ever refers to non-married people, that gives us an additional problem. God is offering a sign that an Alma is going to get pregnant, conceive, and get pregnant. There's only two possibilities in the use of that word. One, that a virgin will conceive. That is a miracle, right? That fits into a sign. That's something that is a dramatic statement to the entire house of David. Or, somebody will get pregnant out of wedlock and have an illegitimate child. That doesn't sound like a sign from God. It doesn't sound like the sort of thing that God would say, here, you know that I am a faithful God, you know I'm going to stick to my word. Here, look at my sign to you, an illegitimate birth. That's completely out of context. And that is why, and this is crucial that we understand this, that when the translators of what we typically today call the Septuagint, it's a loose term of lots of translations, but when the, the, they came to translate the Bible from Hebrew into Greek, which was, by the way, the most common usage of the Bible in the time of Christ, was to have a, a Greek translation that was, uh, that was used, that um, they had to translate this word 
And they had to say, well, how are we going to translate the word armor? And they translated it with the Greek word parthenos, which is a Greek word that only ever specifically means virgin. You say, well, you know, they're probably Christians or something. Nope. It was translated 200 years before the birth of Christ. No bias. No, no trying to put Christian ideas into scripture. Christ hadn't even been born. It was simply an expression of how that Hebrew word was understood in this context. The only way it's a sign is if this woman is a virgin. And so, that is why, I think, and there's not, not, there's not other problems here in this passage we've got to deal with, but at this point, as we read through the passage, I think it will be abundantly clear to those originally hearing this at this time that the sign that God was giving to them, plural, the house of David, to the people of Israel, was that there would be a virgin who would conceive and bear a son whose name would be Emmanuel. Second thing to note, it's not just any virgin. It's not just any Alma. It's not just a Alma. It's the virgin. The Hebrew is specific. There is a def definite article. It is the virgin. The Alma. Which Alma would that be? Well, let's have a look in the previous context. Anyone see an Alma? Can't see one. Let's go back a few more chapters. See an Alma? No, can't see one. There's, there's none there. He's saying that this specific woman is going to conceive. Well, there's no one in the context. So there's no one in the context he's specifically referring to. He has to be referring to someone who was widely known. Who was widely known? Which woman was widely known as being the woman that would give birth to one who would be God with us? The answer is found in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. That it's a seed of the woman that would be the one that would strike the head. It's the seed of the woman. An unusual phrase, we spoke about this not so long ago in another sermon, an unusual phrase because the, the descendancy within Israel was always reckoned according to the father in ancient Israel. It changed in recent years, but historically that was always the case. The, those who were Jews were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the father's line. If your mother was a Jew, but your father was a Gentile, you were not a Jew. Leviticus 25 is a good example of that. So, so, we have a situation here where the seed of the woman is an unusual phrase because it refers to a descendancy from the mother. Why would it be from a mother? Isaiah now tells us. Because there's only a mother. It's a virgin who is going to conceive. Isaiah 7 is the explanation of Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 was well known. The seed of the woman was well known. And the idea that God would redeem humanity, that God would be with his people again, be with humanity again, as he was in Eden, through the seed of the woman, was understood right from the beginning. We spoke about this in the other Tuesday night, that in Genesis chapter 4, when... Um, when Cain's uh, born, the first birth of the Bible, Cain's born, and Eve says, she says, well, I'll read it in the English um, very briefly. I don't want to get it wrong off the top of my head, but he, she says in Genesis 4, 
Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. What's fascinating is in some Bibles, words that aren't actually there, literally in the text, are often italicized. And if you have one of those Bibles, you'll have the words with the help of italicized. The words are not there. They're added in by the translators to try and make sense of this strange expression because she literally says, I have gotten a man, Yahweh. That's what she literally says. I have gotten a man, Yahweh. And that same expression is used elsewhere in the Bible where someone says, a man, Noah, a man, Bob, Jim, whoever, obviously not typical Hebrew names, but you get my point. That in other words, that is the name of the person. If you were to, inter if you take this out of context and you just take this, this expression, it seems to say, I have gotten a man, who's the man you've got? Yahweh. Is it possible that Eve, right from the beginning, understood that the redemption of mankind, the seed of the woman, was already going to be God incarnate? Or was it simply somewhat looser that she understood that God was going to come back into relationship with his people through this child? Even if we don't think that she knew specifically of an incarnation, I think it would be a bit much to expect that, she certainly seemed to get the grasp of the concept that the seed that would be born from woman, that that seed would be the one who would reconcile God and man, that God would be back with them through that seed. Now, how many women exist? One. Who's that? Her. <laughs> so when she's told seed of the woman, what's she going to think? That'll be me. How many births have there been? How many seeds have come forth? None. No births. So she, the one woman, gives birth to the first child. What's she going to think? Here's the seed of the woman. About the time he killed his brother, I think she realized that she'd gotten it wrong. But she also understood to what degree humanity needed reconciling with God, to what degree sin had destroyed their relationship with God. And that's why Isaiah 7 is so crucial. He says, you know that armor? You know that woman? That one that you've been waiting for, that Eve thought she was? That one that we've waited for? Generation after generation? She is coming. And the offspring is Yahweh. He is going to bring God back to his people, restore that relationship like Eden. And therefore his name will be what? Emmanuel, God with us. That's what Adam and Eve had. They had God with them. And that's what they lost. And that's what the seed of the woman was due to bring back. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that the definite article here, the, the Alma, the virgin, is pointing us to Genesis 3.15. And if there was any doubt in that point alone, then by the time we're told that his name is Emmanuel and we see this reconciling relationship that is being brought about by this child, then there shouldn't be any further doubt. That's the sign, house of David. The woman you've been waiting for, she's coming and she's going to come and she's going to give birth and she will be a virgin and this birth will be miraculous. And that's why it was always called seed of the woman. And that's going to be, when that happens, you know that the prophecy, the promise, the covenant with David, that there will be this eternal king that will rule over an eternal kingdom, that that will come to pass.
I think we can clearly see with hindsight how that sign proves that and how that sign is appropriate. Now, verse 15, as we move on, we come to our next problem that the, uh, the more liberal scholars would like to throw in front of us. He, oh, pardon me, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Okay, here's your problem. As, as it is presented by liberal scholarship. Whoever this woman is, and to whomever she gives birth, this child, this Emmanuel, he's going to eat curds and honey. He's going to know how to refuse the evil, choose the good. That, by the way, that, that, that phrase, refuse the evil and choose the good, that refers to the age of awareness of being able to make his own decisions as uh, the child will be responsible for keeping the law. Um, by the time he's that old, he shall eat curds and honey. That is a reference to a paucity of food availability. For, verse 16, before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, so before he gets to that age of, uh, of discernment, the land whose two kings you dread, that's Israel and Syria, will be deserted. So they're saying, before Emmanuel, before Emmanuel is of an age of discernment, then this will be dealt with and sorted out. See, they say, there's your proof. Clearly, he's pointing to a woman who happens to be there in the court. She's going to give birth, have a baby. Before that baby gets to a certain age, this problem's all gone away. There is a sign to Ahaz. There's one that he can see. He can see the woman, she gets pregnant, she has the child, the child grows up. Everything's resolved within a time frame that he could see. Because they say, how does a prophecy that doesn't get fulfilled for 700 years help put Ahaz's mind at rest? Which is a fair point. But the answer is simply this. This isn't a sign to Ahaz. He was offered a sign, he didn't take it. This is a sign to the house of David. Is the house of David still around in 700 years? You betcha. Is the house of David still worried that it's going to exist? You betcha. Is the house of David still needing assurance that the covenant that God made with them is not going to come to an end? You betcha. So the sign is still there to the house of David. That's point number one. Point number two, where's this woman that's supposedly there for them to point at? It's all hypothetical. It's not there. But... When he says, the boy, is there a boy there? Oh yeah, of course, Emmanuel, he's just there. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. There may well be a son called Emmanuel, but when he's given birth, he's a baby, right? And this is a boy, it's a word that refers to an older age group. Are there any boys there? Well, hold on a minute. Who did his Isaiah come with? When God says, go speak to Ahaz, he told him not to go alone. He told him to go with someone. Who did he go with? He went with his son, Shear Yashub. See, they don't even have to wait for someone to get pregnant and then give birth, and then for that child to grow up. The sign's going to come even quicker. This young kid has come with Isaiah, and this young kid, before he, even he, who's already walking and talking and coming along, before he gets to the age of discernment, this whole thing is going to be resolved. That's the boy being referenced in the text. There's no problem here. 
The prophecy is as clear as it was understood by the translators of the Septuagint, as it was understood by people in most of church history, that Isaiah has said to Ahaz, you can have a sign. Ahaz, I don't want a sign. Fine, you don't get a sign. House of David, you get a sign. Here's your sign. The sign that the house of David is going to be safe, that the prophecy is going to, the, 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 the covenant, rather, of David will come to pass and be, be fulfilled. Here it is. Here's your sign. There's going to be a virgin. She's going to conceive. She's going to give birth. That's a miracle, right? She's going to give birth to a baby. That baby is Emmanuel, God with us. He is a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. He is the one that's going to reconcile God and man. And he is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Therefore, house of David, when you see this son of David you can be sure that God is still keeping the covenant with you. That's the, that's the prophecy. And then, separate to that, he's saying, this kid here, this Shear Yashub, he is going to end up in a state of poverty. Things won't be great. There's hardship. You've been attacked. Curds and honey. He's going to eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. So when he gets to the age of discernment, things aren't going to be great. They're not going to be good. He's not going to be having sort of, you know, milk and honey and, and you know, enjoying the, the fat of the land. He's going to be having curds and honey. That's an important distinction. He's, he's not having uh, as much option food-wise. For before, this is the explanation of verse 15, before he gets to the age of discernment, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So he's not going to be in another land. He's going to be in the land, and the, the, the other kings, they're going to be deserted. They're going to be gone. Why is that going to happen? Now, this isn't, by the way, this is not a prophecy, a sign of assurance to Ahaz. He does not get a sign of assurance. He was offered one, he rejected it. Okay? But I want you to note that when we come to verse 16, the two kings you dread, we are back to a singular you. This is not so much a promise to Ahaz as a threat. This is, this is him reaping the rewards of his rejection of grace. The Lord, Yahweh, verse 17, will bring upon you, singular, and upon your people, and upon your father's house, such days have not come about since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. Oh, you thought it was going to be okay, did you? You thought that because these two rats that you were worried about, that they were dealt with, that they're deserted, that they're gone, that everything's okay. I've got news for you, buddy. Though they will no longer be a threat, you're coming up to a time that's going to be absolutely horrific. And this boy here, you see him? He's not got long to go till the age of discernment, right? By the time that happens, you're going to see desolation like you've never seen. You're going to see desolation that has not come upon the land since the kingdoms were split and divided. And how's that going to come about? Look at the last few words of this verse. The king of Assyria. Boom. You trusted in the cat rather than trusting in Yahweh. You were worried about the rats, so you trusted in the cat. And the cat is going to gobble up both the rats and the mouse. There will be devastation upon you. The house of David, you're okay. But you, Ahaz, and your family, and your descendants, you're not good. You're not good at all. And so there was this, this promise 
that was offered, this sign that was offered. Hey, Ahaz, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you a sign that you, this God-hating, God-rejecting, idol-worshipping, wicked, wicked king, I'm going to give you a sign that you're going to be okay. All you've got to do is place your trust in me. He said, no, I'm all right. I've got a plan. I'm trusting in Assyria. And God says, fine. You don't want a sign? You're not getting a sign. But the house of David is not going down because of you, because I've got to deal with the house of David. And they're going to get a sign, and this is their sign. But as for you, you're going to get eaten by the cat. You're going to get taken down by the one that you trusted in. You placed your faith in a nation that is going to destroy you. And how will that come to pass? Well, that is where we pick up in verse 18. And next week we'll complete chapter 7 and we'll look at verses 18 through 25. And we will see a description of the destruction that will come upon Ahaz because of his rejection of God's grace. Whew, we got there. What did we learn from tonight then, folks? We learned that we trust the word of God, that there is a virgin birth prophecy, and that the suggestion that there isn't one is, is, is unfair and invalid. That there is a promise to the house of David that, that when Christ was born, when he was con conceived by a virgin, when he was given birth, when the incarnation happened, that there he was, son of David, the one eternal king. And that the line of David was protected from that point in human history because there was now a king who would be eternal. And though he went to the grave three days later, he rose again and he lives today. And that's why that king is eternal and the kingdom that he will have is eternal too. And that is a sign to who? It's a sign to the Jewish people who still in their blindness reject him to this day. It's a sign of God's faithfulness to them despite their unfaithfulness to him. But also I think what we learn from the whole story of Ahaz is this. It's not good to be a rebel. It's not good to rebel against God. And when God offers you an opportunity to repent, an opportunity to turn, you take that opportunity. We've been learning as we've been going through Hebrews in the morning, again and again, even for believers, there are consequences for sin. There are consequences for sin. There are consequences for sin. For the, for the listeners in the book of Hebrews, they're there with the temple still standing and, and the What's going to happen if they go back and worship in the temple is that they're going to end up being destroyed with that temple in 70 AD and follow. Would they lose their salvation? I don't believe that's what the warning passages of Hebrews are suggesting. But I tell you what it is saying. It's saying you are going to die if you compromise. There's always consequences. I hope none of us worship Molech. I hope none of us are leading entire nations into sin. But nonetheless, there are consequences to what we do. And Ahaz is about to reap that, and that's what we'll see next time. But I take great comfort in this, that even the most wicked of men is offered the grace of God. And I'm thankful that Emmanuel, God with us, has been offered to us, and that we, if we believe, have received that offer of grace. And the consequences for eternity are removed 
he gives us his righteousness. He takes our sin and God is glorified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, uh, for this marvelous passage of scripture. What a blessing it is. What an encouragement it is. Lord, may we be thankful, Lord, that you could speak seven centuries before of a miracle, bring it to pass, to show that as we've been learning through the life of Abraham in Hebrews in the morning, that, that you are faithful, that you are faithful, and that we can trust you. Lord, may we place our trust in you. If a king could have placed his trust in God when the enemies were at the gates, then we can place our trust in you with whatever we face in our life. May we again be found to be people of faith. Amen.